We've been, uh, we've been going through Matthew. If you want to turn all your Bibles over to Matthew 20, um, we are continuing on. We've been in the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, for a long, long time, way before I got here um, in December. Uh, but we're getting real close to the last portion, major portion of the book of Matthew, uh, which is commonly referred to as Holy Week. Um, and we uh, celebrate this at Easter time. And so we just kind of celebrated this maybe a month or two ago. And uh, now we're going to spend almost, we're almost there. We're going to spend a whole chunk of time looking at the last week of Jesus' life. And many of the gospels, um, the, the, of the four gospels, they break it down where that, that one week plays a major portion in the gospel. And rightly so, as it recounts the last um, week of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, his life and his death and his resurrection. And so today we are getting real close to that point. Um, I think Sant will actually start on it next week. But uh, we are in Matthew 20, and we're going to start at verse 17. So Matthew 20, verse 17. And uh, I'm going to read for us our passage, and then we will dive in. So why don't we stand together for the reading of of God's Word, and uh, let's listen as he teaches us. Uh, Matthew 20, verse 17. Now, as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside and said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down, asked the favor of him. What is it you want? He asked. She said, Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup that I am going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave." Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. All right, you guys can be seated. I don't know about you guys, uh, but I've thought about this before. And and a question I want to propose to you guys is, have you ever stopped and thought about the quest for human greatness? Or the quest that each and every one of us has for greatness? It may be in a particular field or maybe in a particular sport or a particular um, hobby that we have, but there is a quest for greatness. Well, there's a a pretty popular book out there uh, called Good to Great, Why Some Companies Make the Leap and Others Don't, and it's by a guy named Jim Collins. And I want to read to you just a little opening of his first chapter that talks about this topic of greatness that's kind of set the tone for our um, talk here from Matthew 20, okay? It says this, good is the enemy of great, and that is one of the key reasons why we have so little that becomes great. We don't have great schools principally because we have good schools. We don't have great government principally because we have good government. 
Few people attain great lives in large part because it's just so easy to settle for a good life. The vast majority of companies never become great precisely because the vast majority of companies, or sorry, because um, vast majority become quite good. And that is their main problem. I use that to illustrate this quest for greatness. Greatness is something that's a desire probably for a lot of us and for a lot of those around us. But the question also remains is how do we attain that greatness? How do we go about getting to that greatness? And that's what Jim Collins in his book, I haven't read it, but he, he goes to outline how to attain greatness for these businesses. But I think it's also really applicable, this idea of greatness and how to attain it for our text here today. And I think that we're going to see that just as Jesus, he showed his greatness through being a servant, so we too only become great in the kingdom of God by becoming humble servants of others. And so we're going to see the example of the greatness of Jesus attained through servant leadership. And then we're also going to see how that sets an example for us as believers to follow his example and becoming humble servants of others. And so with this in mind, we're just going to look at two things, two, two points today. We're first looking at the greatness of Jesus, and then we're going to also look at how that kind of sets an example for us in our lives. And so first, if you're looking at your, your Bibles, verses 17 through 19, and then also 28, we're going to look at here in a minute. But verse 17, it kind of sets the scene for us, right? Jesus and his disciples, they are traveling towards Jerusalem. So they're traveling towards Jerusalem. That's kind of an important uh, scene marker there for us. And once again, Jesus, he reminds us of what is going to happen in verses 18 and 19. He's going to be delivered over to the chief priest and the scribes, and they're going to condemn him to death. He's going to be delivered over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and eventually hung on the cross. And then on the third day, it says he will rise again. And so Jesus here says in a very clear, kind of straight up fashion to his closest guys, hey, look, guys, this is what's going to happen as we approach Jerusalem. My suffering is eminent. It is going to happen. They are approaching the place where these things are going to take place. And it seems that Matthew, he's kind of building a crescendo or a climax for us in the story as a whole, in the gospel as a whole. He's building and building and building. And now they are on the path to Jerusalem where these things will take place. But why does Jesus remind his disciples about this again and again? I think for one, it's preparatory. It's preparing them. He's trying to say, look, guys, this is what is about to happen. We're about to go into the city and these things are going to take place. But you know what? The disciples, again, are not really tracking with Jesus. They're not following him. Because as I was studying this, uh, uh, the little heading in my Bible said, this is the third time that he's told them. The third time that he's told them, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die on the cross for the sin of my people. And you guys are also going to suffer. That's what he says to them. But you know what, Pastor Santo and I were talking about this, and each time there's kind of a warning about this or a foretelling that these things are going to happen, what happens? The disciples, they don't get it. They don't get it. What they actually do is they talk about this idea of greatness, but also almost in like a, a, what is a negative way. You know, before we looked at um, this, it said he's going to die and suffer and do all these things, and then the disciples are arguing who's the greatest. Which one of us is the best, right? And then here again, we have this idea of greatness come up. 
And it's just not getting through their heads that Jesus is going to suffer and die. So some of you guys may be wondering, when I said that the first point of this is the greatness of Jesus, so how do these verses here point us to the greatness of Jesus? Well, turn down to uh, verse 28 and the last verse of our passage. It says this, Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. We're going to look at this here in a few minutes, but I think it kind of sets up uh, verses 17 through 19 real well for us because it talks about Jesus as the prime example of attaining true greatness through servanthood. And verses 17 through 19, just kind of a detailed version of what 28 is talking about, how he will give his life as a ransom for many. And I think Matthew did this on purpose because you know what? He's about to expand almost a whole third of his gospel on that last week of how Jesus did these things of how he was um, unjustly delivered over to these religious leaders and sentenced to death after a messed up trial. He was given over to the Gentiles who would do the dirty work of flogging him and of mocking him and of putting him on the cross. And then he would raise again on the third day. And so Matthew is helping us to see that Jesus is great. He is the prime example of greatness through his life and his death and his resurrection how he gave his life as a ransom for many. And Jesus displayed this true greatness, especially in this last week on the cross. He is the one that can only say, I am the greatest. At this point, we might be able to say, sorry, Muhammad Ali, you're not the greatest. Jesus is. Jesus is the only one in human history that can truly say, I am the greatest. And he proves it by going to the cross. He proves it by even taking the sins of his people and dying on their behalf, taking the penalty that we all deserve. And you know, I think as we we think about the greatness of Jesus in these few verses, we have to stop and to remind ourselves each and every day that we are to think upon this, that we are to meditate on it. We are are to think about his, his greatness through the cross, through his suffering, through his servant his serving other people. We should have attitudes of greatness and humility, or sorry, gratefulness and humility and thankfulness in our hearts each and every morning as we wake up and remember, Jesus did these things for me. Jesus did these things for my son or for my daughter or for my family member. Jesus served. He became a servant. That's how he showed his greatness. It's an upside down way of thinking as we're gonna see with the disciples here in a minute. But Jesus displayed his greatness and we need to remind ourselves that Jesus is the greatest. There is no other greater one. He is the greatest, worthy of all of our worship each and every day, each and every moment. He is worthy of all of our praise. We can't sing enough songs. We can't preach enough uh, sermons. He is worthy of our worship. He is great. But also he talks about this path to true greatness for us as his disciples. And that's what the passage goes on to do in verses 20 through 28. And so after, after the disciples, he tells them about his impending death and his resurrection. Jesus has kind of a surprising, maybe kind of ironic um, interaction with one of the moms of two of the disciples. And we're told that this mom comes up. And uh, we know elsewhere, she's the mom of two of the disciples named James and John. We figure that out in Matthew 4, 
21 and 22. And so she comes up asking a special favor, right? She wants her sons to have the best seats in the kingdom of God, right? She's looking out for her two sons, right? What mom wouldn't want to do that? Um, but, you know, her mom is coming up on the, on the son's behalf. The sons aren't coming. The mom's coming and saying, look, Jesus, can you grant this to my, my sons? And these two seats, what do they, they, are, they, they, what do they denote? They denote authority and power and prestige. They're the best seats. It's kind of maybe like the floor seats of an NBA game, right? You get to the, the, oh, we always see the celebrities, right, sitting right there on the floor, right, the ones that we can't ever afford. But uh, everybody else, you know, the, the celebrities and whatnot, they want to sit there because those are the best seats in the house. Or maybe it's the box seats at a MLB game. I remember uh, growing up, I got to go to a, it was like a minor league game, and I got to sit in a box, uh, a box seat, you know, up on the top of the air-conditioned one, and usually a real hot day, and you can kind of eat all the hot dogs you want, drink all the soda you want, and, and all that kind of stuff. But those were the best seats in the house, right? And this is what the mom is asking for. Would you give my sons the two best seats in your kingdom, the one to your right and the one to your left? It's a big request. But Jesus, he doesn't just blow her off. He engages the mother and the sons on their request. But he tells them, look, I, I don't think you really know what you're asking for. Yeah, sure, I think you, to a degree you know what you're asking for, the best seats in the house. But I don't think you really know what you're asking for. And even if you did, it's not mine to grant, Jesus says. But it's important for us to understand what Jesus is talking about here when he talks about this idea of the cup. You'll see that word there, the cup. Are you able to drink this cup, he says. Well, in verses 22 and 23, it talks about this because, and it's important because it's going to help us to show the contrast between the disciples' way of thinking about greatness and how it's attained versus Jesus' thinking on the matter versus the kingdom of God's way of attaining greatness. Because these two groups, they're, they're thinking on opposite way, ends of the spectrum, right? Greatness is attained in two different ways. Or greatness is two different things. Well, one pastor, he, he uh, has a quote here that's helpful, and I'll read it for us. It says, The cup signifies suffering, sometimes even wrath, retribution, and punishment in the Old Testament. Later on, he continues in the referencing about James and John. He says this, Yet later, they did drink that cup. James was among the first Christian martyrs. As an old man, John endured exile and imprisonment on the island of Patmos. But at that moment... They thought Jesus' cup was full of wine, not suffering. And so Jesus asked him, hey, are you able to drink this cup? And they said, yeah, 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 we are, we're able to do this. We're able to drink this cup. Not, not really getting that it's a cup of suffering. It's a cup of denying oneself and following him, even to, for these guys, to the point of their death. See, the disciples, they wanted greatness, but their path to getting that greatness was not the same path as Jesus had in mind. It was very different. And it was actually more like the world's way of thinking of how greatness is attained than Jesus's. And so we, we continue on in our story and the other disciples, they hear about this and they get real mad, right? They hear about, uh, you know, the, two, the mom asking for the two sons to be on the right and to the left. And the, the text here says that they were indignant, right? That's a real strong word for being really, really mad. It's like they're saying, hey, guys, what's the deal? What, what are you guys doing? Why are you guys throwing the rest of us under the bus and your mom's asking for you two to have the best seats in the house? That's messed up. You know, maybe they're calling them jerks or something else kind of in their minds or whatever it would be, but they're mad, right? Understandably so. 
that these two of the disciples out of the 12 are asking to have the best seats in the house. But you know what? Jesus jumps in before a brawl breaks out and he says, this is a good opportunity for a teaching moment. All right. So let's kind of come to a huddle. Let's kind of have a teaching time. Okay. Jesus often uh, seizes the opportune moments for teaching as just as they're doing normal everyday life. Jesus takes, says, hey, that's a good moment for me to teach. Just like we try to do in parenting or we try to do um, in teaching or coaching a team or, or teaching in a classroom. We see a moment, we try to seize that moment. Well, this is what Jesus does here. He seizes a great teaching opportunity. He brings them together. And I want to read to, to us again what he says in verses 25 through 28. Uh, but Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. And so Jesus, he begins his lesson by first looking at the worldly way of leadership. Or the worldly way of greatness. And how it is attained. Notice he, he describes the way in which they think about leadership this way. He says, they lord it over them and they exercise authority over them. And it's clear that Jesus means this to be in a negative way or he's calling them out for this. He's saying this is not the way to use your power and your authority. Now, it's not talking about kind of another place in the New Testament where you see a right use of authority or a right use of government or a right use of power. He's not, he's not kind of criticizing that because obviously we know that God has given power to the, the governing authorities or to other leaders in the church. And that's a good thing for them to have that power and to use it in a godly, humble way. But what he's saying is these, these people, the Gentiles, they are doing leadership in a wrong way. They're thinking about greatness in a, in a way that's contrary to the way that we think about it in the kingdom. One commentator, he kind of describes the way of thinking this way. In ancient times, the world measured greatness by the number of servants, even the number of slaves one possessed. This is simple fact. And for us, as we think about today in our own culture, we can't say that it's all that much different, right? How is greatness measured at large in our culture? Well, maybe it's by our material possessions. How many cars do we have? How many, uh, for you know, people who like guitars, how many guitars do we have? How many um, vacation homes do we have? Or how much money do we make and our salaries, whatever toys we like? How much do we have? Our material possessions, they equal how great we are. Or maybe it's our job, right? We make a lot of money. Or how many people we have under us, right? Our underlings who kind of do what we say. We give commands and they follow it. Or maybe it's you have a lot of power in your field uh, of your job. Or you exercise a lot of authority in your field. You lord it over them. Well, sometimes that's the way the world looks at success. The way the world looks at greatness. You know, we can name out off person after person after person. We can go in our own hearts to see how we have, we have thought about greatness in a worldly way. And I wonder if you guys ever catch yourself dreaming of what it would be like to be great. You know, one of the examples I thought about was, um, I don't know about you guys, but when I'm on a long car ride, uh, I kind of tend to space out or think about other things, kind of daydream. Hopefully I'm paying enough attention on the road where I'm not going to hurt somebody. Um, But I'm, you know, going down, looking at the billboards, and uh, I always see the ones for the lottery. 
and uh you know 10 million 15 million 200 million whatever it is and i think about you know there's one out here on black horse pike that says uh wake up with a thousand dollars each day um you know the rest of your life and i sit there and think about what would it be like right and i start thinking that's a good way for me to spend my time you know trying to pay attention and on the road and I'm, i'm thinking how would i divvy out the money all right how i would get this and i would get that sure i'd give away to this place and that place and and i think about the money but i think about what it would be like to be great what it would be like to be successful or what it would be like to be rich well in verse 26 jesus he draws a definitive line in the sand for this type of thinking he says that may be the way in which the gentiles think about life and do life that may be the way that they attain greatness or think about greatness but he says this is not the way that's going to happen in my kingdom the verse says it shall not be so among you It shall not be so among you. So how should it be in the kingdom of God? How should it be in the church? How should it be for us as believers who are trying to follow Jesus? How do we attain true greatness? Well, Jesus, what he does is he offers a whole new way of thinking, a whole new paradigm, one that's opposite or upside down of the world. I was going to put a picture up here. Probably you guys have seen this before, the, the triangles kind of of leadership. And you usually have the, the worldly way of thinking where the triangle's like this and the leader's on top and everybody else is below them. Well, in the kingdom of God, that's inverted, right? And, and the leader is a servant, okay? And serving the rest and thinking about the rest. And that well-known illustration kind of talks about that. It's upside down. It's opposite of the way the world thinks about greatness, And Jesus says that us as his disciples, if we want to be great, he uses two words to talk about that. He says, one, a servant. Think about a servant. What images come to mind when you think about a servant? Well, this word, I looked it up and one one defined it this way, was a household servant, especially one who waited on tables. Who around us goes around to our favorite restaurant and says, that's the greatest person in the restaurant? That person who cleaned up after me. Not even the waiter, but the person who cleaned up after me. What Jesus says is is great in the kingdom of God, a servant. The other word, it's it's a stronger word. um, And and when I looked at the commentaries, it's meant to kind of have more of a punch, a slave. Not only a servant, but a slave. When we think about that, and and that's maybe even a, a lower in society right? Slaves is is property. A slave is one that you don't think has any rights, that serves and must serve. This word, uh, one one talks about it this way, in the pagan world, humility was regarded not so much as a virtue, but as a vice. Imagine a slave being given leadership. Jesus' ethics of the leadership and power in his community of disciples are revolutionary. This is a revolutionary way of thinking, It's an upside-down way of thinking. It's an opposite way of thinking. It's not something that the world look at and say, yeah, that's how I want to get greatness. That's how I want to do this. But it's the way for us as believers that we attain true greatness. It's the kind of thing that makes us scratch our head. It's not really intuitive. It's not really what we would think about as, as natural just like that saying that we've been looking at that, uh, that Jesus repeats over and over again in the Gospel of Matthew, that the first shall be last and the last shall be first. That doesn't really make sense, Jesus. What are you talking about? It's hard for us to wrap our heads away around that, but that's the way of the kingdom for us as believers. 
It's how we are to think about our relationships with one another in the kingdom of God. But Jesus, he doesn't just talk about this principally, but he gives an example. He gives himself as the prime example for this new kingdom ethic, this new way of thinking and living. And so how did he show this kingdom uh, paradigm of greatness? Well, the, the, the verses they tell us, well, one, he came not to be served like the Gentile lords, right? Or not like the Gentile lords, sorry. They came to be served. Jesus said, no, 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 I'm not coming to be served. But actually what I'm coming to do is I'm coming to serve. I'm coming to serve. The Gentiles didn't do that. The Gentile leaders, they were the ones who were served. And you know what he also did? He came to give his life as a ransom or a payment for the sins of his people, payment for freedom. Jesus' death and his, his perfect record of righteousness paid the debt for people like you and me, the ransom payment. He came to do that for many. And this is going back to what we just talked about in verses 17 through 19. That and what that encapsulates, what, what that talks about, his coming, his living, his dying on the cross, his raising from the dead. That's his greatness. That's how he showed it to us. His own life was sacrificed and not the life of others. And so you see, we can almost have a chart, you know, pitting against the, the Gentile way of leadership or the worldly way of leadership and the leadership of Jesus. And it's opposite at every point. Jesus says there's no better example of greatness through serving than himself. One who would come and who would die for sinners like you and me, giving up his life as a payment for our sin and the penalties of God's wrath, that we may be freed from that. You know, oftentimes I think about, um, I, I think about this, this passage and um, even as I was preparing this week, and I, and I think oftentimes we think we want to be the ones that want to be served. You know what? I, I don't want to do this thing where I'm serving other people. I want to be the one where I can be served. I rarely walk into a scene and say, how can I serve? How can I be kind of play? Um, how can I serve in the background? And how can I do some of these things to help people? It may not be the most glorious position, but how can I go and do this? Oftentimes I'm asking, how can I be served? I may not be that blunt about it, but oftentimes that's what's going on in my heart. How can I be served? How can I get the, the spotlight position here in this scenario or this scenario over here? And I want to think about, just in means of application for us, what are some of the relationships where it's hard to do this? But also seeing these relationships as opportunities for us to put into practice what Jesus modeled before us. So let's look at a few of these relationships. First, husbands and wives. Husbands and wives, and I'm tempted, I'll be honest, I'm tempted to skip this one because of the, the conviction that I feel right off gate about this passage and in light of how I treat my wife. Too many times I treat my wife like a Gentile, unbelieving leader. I don't treat her like Jesus. I, I, I see ways in which I want to be served or I want my um, you know, kingdom to be built up or, or I want my needs to be met. And I'm not asking how can I serve, but then it makes me think back to this passage and also one, you know, one you guys have probably heard before in Ephesians 5. It says this, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Talk about conviction as we think about what Jesus did and how he served his bride, the church. 
And then when we come to our relationship with our, hus- or with our wives or with our husbands, and as we talk about this idea of servant leadership, it's convicting. And maybe there are places where we need to repent and to ask for forgiveness from our spouse and say, sorry for treating you this way. Sorry for not serving you in this way that Jesus modeled before us in his word. But you know what? It's also an opportunity. It's not just a place to be, be called out for our sin, but it's an opportunity to live for him. It's an opportunity that by God's grace we can strive for. And by God's help we can strive to treat our spouse in this way. We can both strive for true greatness by serving and loving each other, by considering each other's needs above our own. Maybe it's a, a good thing for you guys to talk about here uh, today when you guys go home, maybe for lunch or while you're going for a walk today or hanging out as a family. Where are the places that we are failing to serve and love each other? What are the opportunities that we have that God's put before us to serve and love each other? Where can we grow? And maybe taking some time to pray with your spouse over that and asking for God to show you the kind of servanthood that we talked about here in this passage today. Well, that's one, one set of relationships. Let's look at another one uh, briefly. Parents and children. Parents and their children. I mean, how applicable is this for this idea of servanthood, of serving and loving each other? Kids will often see us and watch us interact, uh, the mom and the dad. They will see us serving one another, and they will catch it. And one of the things that I was taught um, when I was in a college ministry um, back in college there's a phrase that's saying the best things in life are caught and not taught. And, I, you know, plenty of people have said that. The best things are caught and not taught, meaning when they watch us, do they see us serving each other? Do they see us serving other people, taking the form of a servant? Do they see that in our lives? Do we bring them around to see that? Not in a place to say, look how great I am, son, or look how great I am, daughter, but to say we're setting an example before our children that they would catch it and that they would want to do that themselves. And as parents, we can teach our kids in their relationships maybe with their other siblings or other kids that they know, teach them how to serve and how to give their lives, to surrender their desires, their needs for the sake of another person, just as Jesus did. Maybe it's taking time to pray that this would be our kids' go-to mindset, right? This would be our kids' go-to mindset. How can I serve? That they would come to a relationship and say, instead of saying, what can I get? They're asking, what can I give? I want that for my kids. I want my kids to say, to come to a friendship and say, what can I give to this friendship? How can I serve? And it's a hard lesson. Just like it's a hard lesson for us that we talked about as disciples of Jesus, it's a hard lesson for our kids to get too. It's one that we're going to have to teach over and over and over again. And it takes perseverance. Well, one last category of relationships, uh, kind of the category of believer to believer or Christian to Christian. How do we relate to one another in the church? God often gives us times to serve one another, to, to take the form of a servant like Jesus did. But oftentimes we miss those. And one roadblock that's mentioned by, it was mentioned by a pastor as I was doing my studying. He says that oftentimes we don't serve each other because we say it's not our gift or our strength. He says it this way, Christians often hide behind their theology. A number of us hide behind gift theology. 
If we do not want to take a turn at a form of humble service, such as nursery duty or kitchen cleanup, we say, what? It's not my gift. I'm sure we're all guilty of that at one point or another. No, no, no. I, you know, there's an opportunity to serve in the kid, with the kids today. I don't think so. Kids aren't really my gift or my passion or I'm not good at that. We hide behind that. Another quote here that's uh, pretty cool from J. Oswald Sanders. He says this, those who lead the church are marked by a willingness to give up personal preferences, to surrender legitimate and natural desires for the sake of God. Legitimate and natural desires for the sake of God and his kingdom. So sometimes it's not just saying no to bad things or no to selfish desires, but it's saying no to good things. It's good and it's right that, that I, I, I want to get some good sleep, right? But to say no and to wake up early and to take care of my kids so my wife can sleep in after staying up with a baby all night, that's a good thing that I need to learn to say no to, to serve my wife and to love her. And oftentimes I don't. But praying that God would help me to be able to do that. And God would help us to be able to not hide behind our gift theology or whatever you want to call it, but to say, you know what? I'm going to take the form of a servant with whatever opportunity God gives me in the church. If it's children, great. If it's middle schoolers, God help you. And uh, if, it's, if, it's, if it's high schoolers or if it's the elderly or if it's whatever the opportunity is, big or small, that we would take the form of a servant and say, God, please help me now in this moment to serve rather than to be served. I pray that this would be, that we would have this kind of serving and slaving mentality here at our church and also wherever we go. That we would be those who are, people look at that church and say, they are the servants. They serve this city. They love this city. They sacrifice for this city. They do that for each other. And I want to be a part of something just like that. Because you know what they're seeing? They're seeing Jesus in us. They're seeing Jesus and his kingdom being worked in and throughout our lives and our church. And seeing how that radiates and affects relationships and neighborhoods and cities and places of work and places of play. Seeing how Jesus can transform all of that through something that's upside down, a different way than the world looks at it. In Matthew 20, it gives us this great picture of, of Jesus laying down his life to serve many, but also the, the call for you and I to follow his example. I want to I close by um, reading just a, two paragraphs from a book that I read in college to kind of cap off our, our talk here on, on servant, um, servanthood. And he says this, What if you made the decision now to spend your life serving others rather than being served? What if you began to define success by how well the people around you are doing rather than how you are doing? The question remains, who would look out for number one? If you, were to spend, if you were spending all your time trying to help number two, number three, and number four reach their goals. As I write tonight, I look out my window and see one of the students who has lived with us for the past two years who, and who models servanthood wherever he goes. Brian, a recent college graduate, now participating in the leadership training center in our home, is raking the leaves, all the leaves, in our backyard without anyone asking or requiring him to. When Brian first moved in, his quiet and reserved personality got lost in a crowd of extroverts. 
But it didn't take long before all of us realized there were a servant uh, there was a servant among us, constantly putting others' needs ahead of his own. Whether it's cleaning up after dinner, helping one of my kids with homework, or washing someone's clothes, Brian is the first to volunteer and the last to leave when there's a job to complete. Because everyone respects him so much, Brian now wields considerable influence without even trying with students, staff, and even my family. He's the proof that the last shall be first, and a true leader is simply a servant. So my heart, I think, and more importantly, Jesus' heart for each and every one of us is that we would become those types of people, those types of servants, those types of leaders. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you will be a servant. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you will be a slave. The first shall be last, and the last will be first. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. your word is always just at the right time for us. Your word is powerful and it changes us. God, this example that you have set before us in Jesus of a servant, it's so hard. So many times, God, we don't want to be served or we don't want to be servants. We would rather be served. God, forgive us of that. Maybe we do need to be convicted of places where we're doing that today. Pray that you would search our hearts in our lives and show us that we may repent and experience your forgiveness, but then also that you would show us and and, and empower us and help us to be servants of others, just as you modeled before us. God, we thank you that we have your help in Jesus, that the Holy Spirit dwells inside of us, that he is, is helping us to obey you and to follow you, and that there is freedom in following your ways. There is joy in following your ways. There is freedom and joy in being a servant. God, help us to do this, not only for our good, but for your great glory, that your greatness would be displayed here in Atlantic City and beyond, all over the world. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. This Sunday sermon was preached by the Reverend Peter Eck, Assistant Pastor at New City Fellowship of Atlantic City. New City's Sunday Sermon is recorded live on location at New City Fellowship of Atlantic City. If you're in the Atlantic City area, stop by. Our address is 215 North Sovereign Avenue, Atlantic City, New Jersey. Visit us online at newcityac.org. That's www.newcityac.org. Oh God is written and performed by the Reverend Dr. Santa Garofolo. Join us next week for a brand new New City's Sunday Sermon.